0: Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 73. And today we're going to be doing a special react episode as Xenia rejoins us. We're going to be hearing her take on the histories of anti Asian violence, what it means to lament and to grieve, and to explore some of the ways in which we can be moving ahead. Let's do this. Alright, we are back and we are excited for today because we originally had thought that we were going to do a two-part episode, although this conversation has produced more and more different responses, and we really wanted to do one episode with Xenia back. And Xenia is here. Xenia, what's going on?
1: Hey, how's
2: it going? Yes,
0: yes. We are so glad you're back and that you're feeling better. This is going to be like our first react episode which is pretty cool. I don't think we've ever done a react episode. And so Xenia is going to be reacting to what we talked about in our first two episodes in this series on anti-Asian violence. As always, Bernard and Shu are here as well. What's going on?
2: What up? Yo, Yo. we should get this on a Twitch live stream going. Twitch (laughs) react.
0: All the cool peoples. All the cool peoples. And as we have also listened to the responses of people sending in their feedback and their thoughts and reactions. We're actually going to be doing a fourth episode as well later on, on all the different types of responses that people have sent in. And we're really excited to kind of dive into some of those conversations as well, because there's a lot of different perspectives. And if you have any responses to any of the first three episodes of this series, please make sure you comment and let us know and contact us. We'd love to hear from you. And we're going to be doing our fourth episode on those different perspectives and responses. But today we're talking about Xenia's reaction. Xenia wasn't here last time, but we're so glad that she's back. We're back at full strength. And we wanted to hear what were some of your thoughts as you listened to the first two episodes, the first one being the one talking about lamenting and grieving and processing through you know the situations and, and what has been revealed. and. You know, the second episode was about what are some of the things that we can think about as we think about moving ahead to consider and to contemplate. So let's talk about initial reactions. First of all, Xenia, what did you think?
1: I'm just coming out of the New Leafs. Shout out to our friends at New Leaf. Yeah, yeah. Their series on anti-racism, right? And so I've like, I've got all that stuff in my head and then we're doing this. So yeah, I'm just thinking through this episode. You guys talked through so much stuff. Talked through. You know, the amplification of COVID-19, and you talked around the differences across the country, you talked about CRT, which honestly, I don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> There's the experiences and diversity of experiences of immigration. You talked about like powers and principalities, which is almost always one of my favorite things to talk about. And then, you know, you rolled right into hospitality and you talked about what does it look like to be a Christian in our context? So I don't know actually where to start.
0: It's truly, truly a react episode, which is great. Perhaps one place that we can start is thinking about the histories of anti-Asian sentiments or violence within Canada, and especially in response to also what has been unearthed and revealed because of some of the incidents that have happened in the States. Of course, we are not immune to it in Canada as well for you. What do you think about some of those histories those narratives that have happened here in Canada?
1: Yeah, I think we don't think often about like we learn about the Japanese concentration camps, we talk about the Chinese head tax a lot and I think it's particular to who we are and our location as East Asians in Canada. But I think sometimes we forget about the Indian populations, the racism that they've experienced, right? So, you know, the the boats that were turned away and even the ongoing systemic racism that brown communities face. And by brown here, I mean, like, you know, the the Punjabi demographics. And we know that COVID-19 has disproportionately hit, say, Brampton, for example, of the three areas around the GTA. So I think when we're talking about narratives that are missing in the Asian context, I think oftentimes we don't consider the South Asian narrative often enough. I'm also thinking through, like, solidarities with our Indigenous peoples in Canada here. So you know, today, today is the day where it was announced from Coesses, First Nations, but the 751 unmarked graves. And I don't think we know often enough like how much solidarity there was between, you know, the first wave of Chinese immigrants over to Canada to build the railway. And they were taken in by the First Nations peoples. I don't think we hear that often enough because there's such a disparate sort of understanding of the different waves of immigration from the Chinese history. So, when I'm thinking about anti Asian violence, I'm thinking we need to actually situate it within the larger narrative of Canadian history. In the episode that you guys recorded, like you were very careful to say, well, we're Canadian and also we're affected by the Americans. And I don't think we also know how outsized the American influence is on us, because I don't think we've really wrestled through what it means to be Asian in Canada. I don't think we've really thought through, like, how do we locate ourselves within the sort of broader narrative. And I also don't think we've recognized how much of the solidarity narratives that we're seeing to coalesce in the United States or have been coalescing in the United States were also present in Canada. The other thing I would probably want to say to that too is that we should talk about all the ways how immigration policies affect who we are here in Canada, right? Like the United States actually lets more people in than we do as Canada. Our immigration policies are among the most stringent in the world. We only let people with a certain education, with a certain like, amount of wealth, and so on and so forth. And I don't think we've actually thought through how racist those policies can be. So I think that's just some of the things that I was thinking about as I was listening to that episode.
0: You mentioned some huge topics there. Those are huge topics.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think more than ever that we're we're trying to get a better grasp on this wide issue racially, eth- ethnically. If I were to be honest, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it as I try to study what's going on in the nation right now. And actually, the worst place to study, I find, is the news <laughs> to, to look at what's going on. And I, I agree with, with Xenia. It's just like, how would the anti asian sentiments that happen be situated in what's going on it's if we don't understand a bit more what's going on either historically or or what's going on with with our ethnic adjacent uh, like uh, other people are going on then at times we only look at it as a vacuum right okay when this happens bad happens to some of our people then we'll cry wolf and we'll, we'll just yell at yell at people make a stink but then well, what's going on with, with other people? And then also as a Christian obligation, what does that look like? And so I, I do totally recognize that, you know, like we have to keep becoming more engaged in those conversations. This podcast at times, we talk about the, you know, Asian Canadian church, what the Asian Canadian church talked to other Asians and talked to, you know, non-Asians too. You know, that, that's definitely important.
3: But I think there's something also like with Canadian-ness that I don't know if we've been able to truly articulate well because maybe we don't have the clarity of the language or like this less of a Canadian identity versus say like an American identity where there's key markers where I think with the Canadian identity there's like an ebb and flow so I think like you know when Zini we were talking about like the different policies of like immigration policies and stuff like that like I wonder if we don't really engage with that because like most people probably don't know because it's just or don't don't care yeah or don't care (laughs) but but my my hunch is they probably don't know because if you know then maybe you care right but but it's just like that's just maybe just not the canadian norm in some ways it's kind of like oh history is short so like i don't know and and maybe like even through this pandemic and through everything that's kind of been exposed like maybe we are in a, in a junction where we're like, maybe we do really need to wrestle and formulate like a Canadian understanding of who we are. And especially for the church, like maybe we really do need to understand like a Canadian lens and understand. And I know like, you know, we were very big on contextual stuff, but like, I think that like also like this kind of wider Canadian narrative and formation is, is integral.
1: Yeah. And I think, especially as we're thinking through the Asian demographic, like I'm thinking about, Who gets disproportionately affected by our immigration policies are people like, for example, Thai and Filipino migrant workers, right? Conditions are terrible. That was exposed in the first wave of the pandemic when we in the news, when people found out how bad the conditions were. Of course, it's not just them, the Jamaicans, the Hispanic populations were impacted as well. But just even thinking about that, I don't think we're often even aware of what happens uh, in the broader Asian narrative. And you're right. I, I was saying to a friend the other day, I wonder if to be a settler is to actually be diasporic because we don't have, you know, a quote unquote solid Canadian sort of identity. I think
0: a lot of these type of conversations have given me reason to pause and to reflect and to listen because. You're right, Xenia. Like there's a lot that has gone on, and there's a lot of experiences that people have had that we are not aware of. And half the topics that you talked about earlier, Xenia, I didn't even think about, you know, for most of my life, <laughs> let alone, you know, especially know where to even start when we see instances of anti-Asian violence and not realizing how much it has really been going on behind the scenes or the histories behind it, it has really led to more opportunities or at least just an awareness of of recognizing that I don't really understand a lot of the things that are going behind the scenes. And, you know, Shu said this earlier, you know, if we only look at the news, we still interpret the news. We still come from it from our own vantage points and our perspectives. And yeah, like we might have learned about Canadian history in high school, but you know, how does that connect at all to what we're talking about today? And for some parts, it probably does connect, but I feel for a lot of the areas, I felt very uninformed about. And I only started to look up things and to start talking to people and listening to people when instances of violence have happened. And so I count myself a little bit in the boat of feeling a little bit uninformed. not aware. And I think it has been very stretching. And it has been an ongoing process of trying to understand the experiences, but then also trying to make sense of what does it mean for us now. And, you know, later on, we're going to be talking about this, but like, you know, what does it mean for us to kind of think about moving forward? So there's so much in there. And I have to admit that, like, I haven't thought as much about a lot of this until this past number of months.
1: So my, my background is a bit eclectic, right? And it, it's been a great privilege, actually, because one of the privileges of having an eclectic background is that I get to hear lots of different stories. So some of our listeners might not know this, but I have a, I have a minor in history. It was supposed to be a major until I realized that, you know, I couldn't major in Asian history at the University of Ottawa, uh, which,
0: <laughs> who Whoa, knew? whoa, is shots fired toward Ottawa? Come on, we have listeners in Ottawa. Wait a second, Zinia, what's going on?
1: (laughs) No, I picked the program for its French immersion, and then you know things went sideways. Um, Ah, okay. But you know, I I really valued my history education, and then more to that, you know, I found out when I was a little bit—I think I was in high school, maybe—when I found out that my great grandfather actually worked on the railroad, and so there was all this history there that I started to think through and read through because I wanted to know more about my family's history. And then I, when I lived in Vancouver for a year, I was so caught up in this like, oh, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be Chinese that I, I, went, I went to the Vancouver Public Library and pulled book after book after book off my shel- off the shelves, right? And lots of Frank Chin, lots of fiction, actually. Okay. There's, so there's a, it's probably R-rated, right? But Sky Moon Cafe opened my imagination up to, you know, the Chinese story, interwoven with the Indigenous story. And I don't know how I feel about the book now, but it really was informative for me to understand a different narrative about what it means to be Chinese in Canada.
0: And that's why she's the professor. She's just read about everything on everything. (laughs) I have not. (laughs) Well, until you prove us, you know, otherwise, then we'll always hold to that. So one of the things that we also talked about in one of our previous episodes was about the practice of grieving and lamenting. And of course, there is an awareness, of course, of what has happened. And Bernard kind of mentioned earlier, maybe when we are aware, we'll care. So talking about the practices of grieving and lamenting, what are some of your thoughts about what does it mean to be able to do that in connection to what we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I think awareness is one thing, and I, I think you handled it really well in the episode. And I, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head if he had said this, but I, I think what is really important is, in the midst of the overwhelm, like trauma is always overwhelming. That's that's what makes it trauma, right? It's like the sensation that the body cannot handle, and so it just shuts down. And I think the pandemic was traumatic, no matter where you are, to varying degrees, right, or who you are. Racism is traumatic. Like That's self-evident, I think. Lament isn't about being overwhelmed. Lament is about submitting your overwhelm to God and asking for where God's heart is. The truth is is that God weeps far more than we do. God is more upset about this stuff Mm. than we are. And I don't think we often sit in the reality of a broken hearted God. Mm. We sit in a vengeful God. We sit in a loving God, but we don't often sit with a broken hearted God. And I think when we sit with a broken hearted God, we start to begin to understand his justice. We begin to understand his love. And so lament actually ushers us into that place of sitting with broken heartedness of being able to say, God, you are weeping, so invite me to weep. God, you love, so invite me to love. God, you long for shalom, your peace, so would you invite me to long for the same? I think only when we begin to sit in that place that we begin to understand how God's justice and his shalom might take place. And it's interesting, right? Because I think I was reading this piece about Jewish interpretation versus Christian interpretation. And This is broad strokes. But the Jewish rabbi I was reading said something along the lines of, oftentimes, Christians have this tendency of asking questions to the text. Whereas Jewish interpretation says, wait, let me read the text and then ask questions of the text. And I, I think what we do with lament is the same. We have our own questions. It's not that we set them aside. but we come again to the text where God is brokenhearted, we come back to the text of lament and we watch the sort of flow of the lament and we are invited to the same. So I'm thinking like the Psalms are a great place for this. Lamentations is a great place for this. I would recommend Jeremiah, but with a, with a like heavy dose of, you will cry if you read Jeremiah. I cry when I read Jeremiah. So, you know, when you get to John 11, right? And there's all this narrative all around it. And in the middle of the text, John eleven thirty 35, two words, right? Jesus wept. And, you, and if you have any sense of the narrative, you're aware in that moment that there's a pause and you're supposed to pause with it. And you feel the gravity of the situation with which Jesus feels Lazarus' death. And then Jesus speaks. So, what does it look like for us to pause with Jesus and allow Jesus to speak?
2: Dang.
0: Amen. Oh, man, that is a very good word.
2: And, and I, I think in our Asian Canadian church, we don't have space for that a lot, or we don't know what to do with it. Our, our main thing is just to usually just keep on keeping on, there isn't that space that pause, that silence. And we don't have to be, okay, I have to fix myself or have to fix somebody else, or I have to just keep being functionally doing everything, but that there's permission to be spend that time in lament because it's needed for us. And it's part of, I think just, yeah, follow following the footsteps of Christ as, as you're mentioning, that even he would, he would be taking that, that pause.
3: Pause is so disruptive. Like I was kind of thinking about, and I don't know, this one, maybe Sinian would need to correct, but like the meaning of "sela" in the Psalms and what it means to kind of have that pause and almost like an intermission. And I could be totally wrong and off, but there's this kind of like this intentional pause, right? And I don't know, like if it's embedded into even, you know, the narratives of lament, maybe that's, that's part of like an invitation for us to practice that too.
1: Yeah, that's the name of my church, by the way.
3: <laughs> Did I get it right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of it, we've got a really bad sense of humor. So some of it is like, how are all the ways we can pun pun this name? But yeah, it's a stoppage, right? In the text, so.
2: You're a Christian vocal band, too. CCM band. Oh, no. Did, <laughs> no, no, no Con- <laughs> Didn't Kanye
3: have a song called "Sailor" too?
2: Yeah, I think so. He's on his... Jesus is king.
0: I just want to kind of follow up on some of this. Shu had mentioned that perhaps there's not that space within our church communities to do this. And I think I want to maybe take it a step more and think about, is this also a practice and skill that we need to be able to develop? Because I'm wondering if we actually have the capacity to do it for both ourself and our own trauma And then to be able to do it for others and thinking about trauma that other people have experienced and to grow in empathy and to be growing in sitting with someone. Because I don't think that this is something that we naturally gravitate toward. Or maybe we don't know what to do. And sometimes we feel the silence when we are having silence. (laughs) And sometimes we want to just respond with a pat answer or some cliche just to, you know, Escape the moment. But I don't think it's a given that we can just be able to do it. And what does it mean to really develop that practice? What does it mean to really be able to sit in that? And I love what you said, Xenia, that when we think about God as a God who is brokenhearted, how do we sit with that? And my mind kind of goes to a question of, you know, how do we even. Begin to think about that. (laughs) How do we even begin to conceptualize that and understand it, so that we ourselves can be formed and to be more like Christ and to be able to sit and be pausing and weeping. So yeah, that's where my mind is going right now because I I just wonder if some some of these things have not been formed in us or we have not developed it, and so that may be one of the reasons why it becomes so difficult. In for us to be able to address and have healthy ways of of processing and sitting with this,
1: yeah, that's a great question. If only because I struggle with it, right? My spiritual director just gets so frustrated with me because I don't sit still well, and he's always like, "Oh no, just you know, you just talk it out, and then and then we're you're gonna listen to me read the scripture or this poem, and then you're just gonna sit and wait for God's voice." And I'm always super thankful that he does that because God knows it's not my first sort of I'm a I'm a type A, like let's go for it sort of kind of person. So yeah, but you know, go see a spiritual director. Like that's that's one way. And then, you know, my my church has prioritized spiritual formation as one of our key practices. It just means that we get led into group spiritual direction as part of our service. It means that. We'll chuck a Sunday out the window planning. And it's easier for me, right? Because my church is small. I'm not, it's not like a thousand person church or a hundred percent church even, or even like fifty percent church, much smaller than that. But we're learning to be flexible with what God is doing. And you know, the week where things went, you know, I I think I remember I don't remember which week it was, but we decided we were going to take out our programming and we we're going to do some mourning and lamenting together. So we had a liturgy prepared, we had some time and space that was silent. We put up a jam board for people to do art on. And then we said, well, this practice can't just be a one-off sort of thing. So, you know, we we invite people to do that now even, to journal through their feelings as they're going through scripture, to paint on jam boards if they want, and to show us afterwards. We've had a couple of spiritual directors come in now and lead us into breath prayers, those sorts of things, you know? So I think that's one way we can lean into it, that if we practice and cultivate the practice of silence and we deliberately infuse it into our Sunday service or into our small groups or into, I was going to say band meetings, but that doesn't mean anything, right? Into our accountability groups, then maybe it'll just start to become second habit. It'll just become habit because the more you do it, the more you practice it, the more it will just come instinctively. Like you can't, like everything that we've been taught has been discipled into us, right? It's not just, oh yeah, we're going to change today. Well, Rome wasn't built in a day.
3: I wonder if part of that discipleship process is kind of shifting from the mind to the heart. And I wonder if like when it's often like a cognitive dance, then you even trying to wrestle with lament in an intellectual level. Versus, like, lament can't be intellectualized. It has to be felt. It has to be like you actually have to embody it. You're actually entering into kind of that, you know, that sphere, which is why, like, I really like James K. Smith's book "You Are What You Love" about discipleship and like kind of going into kind of the, the holistic kind of embrace versus like this kind of naturally cognitive approach. And I wonder if that's part of the critique of kind of our modern evangelicalism, where like. I remember attending church earlier on in my Christian walk, where emotions was 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 like wrong. You shouldn't feel. Feelings can't be trusted. But then, like, how far have we moved? Like, moved into that mode that like we don't realize that even God Himself empathizes and has feelings, and and if we are made in His image, then that is also kind of part of our our discipleship and lament and these, these kind of deep emotions are still, you know, part of who we are.
1: No, I think you're right and it's I think it's it's really interesting to me as a woman that it is women who lead us into lament. Like it's a it is women who lead mourners into lament in the Hebrew culture and it's similar in the Chinese culture. And so I sorry guys, but I really do think that sometimes women have it a little bit. I don't know if second nature is sort of the thing uh, certainly, I'm more intellectually inclined than I am emotionally, but um, there's a real gift that we might be missing because we have excluded women from the conversation.
2: I can agree with that. I think in my family, for example, I think I get frustrated the most with feelings and, and tears a lot, like, especially when it's just uncontrollable. And I think that's actually the language and lament that we're helpless, right? that it's not something we control. And there there is something that I think about, like, you know, my children. I'm like, can you please stop crying? Like, just stop. Like, I I can't deal with it. But my wife has this supernatural gifting to go, okay, you you just you gotta stop telling them not to cry or, or whatever, like just relax here. So there there is something about that that we need to live into. We need to reflect, not just like we're saying intellectually, but just be okay in that space and trust that God will meet us even within there. Like, I'll agree with you, you Xenia. Like, it's not a space that I want to be in at times as, as a dude.
0: There's definitely a scariness about it because it is uncontrollable. Because as emotions and feelings come to the surface and they are expressed, it can go in so many different directions. I think for some people, the sense of being that raw and being that open is scary. However, it's something that God has created in us, and and it is some way in which He engages with us. is is within our emotions, as 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 they are indicators of of how we are reacting and responding to things. As we are also understanding how He responds to things. I think there's a lot to be said in, in that, and I, I just wonder if sometimes that first step really is being willing to engage in it
3: it's interesting because we talked about like lament and the practice of lament and kind of feeling it and how like it's hard to you know sometimes you know we just don't want to go there but yet as a culture we're okay with anger we're okay with rage right like that's that's an emotion and that's something that like we're like yeah no there is injustice i'm going to be angry about it and i'm going to be like we're going to we're going to you know protest we're going to fight for this stuff but it's like almost like it's not okay to be the other side of the same you know facing injustice cuz there's like anger anger and wanting to see change but then there's also the grieving and the lament
0: i think what you say actually is very indicative of something because you know we can be angry about something and rage about something but there is a sense of how that relates to passion or perhaps it relates to Control and strength, whereas lamenting and grieving and silence, those are uncontrollable. Those are maybe. I, I wonder if some people think of it as weakness, and perhaps culturally, that yeah.
2: I, I didn't want to get into this, but you know, when Zena is bringing up, you know, some of the gender things here, it's that because I think Christianity, or let's just say evangelicalism, more more in general, North American, let's just say generally has that masculine kind of tone to it without understanding, no, there, there is the, the feminine within here that we need to embrace as well to see the full image of God come out here. And we're just not comfortable there. And it's been like, you're saying, strength, r- rage as passion. That's really what it is, but that's not all that it is. Uh, in following Christ. So, I, you know, we're going to talk about that in our next series, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just going to add to that, right? Like, I'm not sure, I think it's become a gendered thing. I don't know, like, how far back we can trace it, or even if we want to. I'm not sure we do. But I'm reminded of something that my professor once said to me It's not that the poor are holier, it's that they have fewer barriers to the heart of God. And so, anybody who has ever had any measure of control, like the rich young man, will have problem following Jesus. And so I think mm. it's up to us to see like, oh, what are the barriers that we have in following Jesus? Why do we have such a hard time with the emotions? This is all that you've said, right? But it's not that the poor are any holier. It's that the poor have fewer barriers to the heart of God.
0: That is definitely something to, to dwell upon and think about for sure. And so as we're kind of wrapping up today, Xenia, we want to hear a little bit of your thoughts about you know as we're in this space what might be the next step we're not really trying to solve all the problems but we're just contemplating what does it mean to think about that next step and where could it go from here and so how are you kind of continuing to think through this and discern through that as you've been part of spaces and and moments of grieving uh, and not to say that that doesn't continue to happen because it absolutely needs to continue to happen But are there any other ways in which we are continuing to think about what that next step is?
1: Yeah, I was really intrigued that the powers and principalities was in the first episode. And then your conversation about politics was in the second episode, because I would really put those two together. The other half of my degree was political science. So, you know, voila, here we go. But, you know, the the powers and principalities are our structures, right? And politics is immensely part of our structures. and so. I've been thinking like our hope and our trust should not be placed in the structures themselves, but to know that the powers and principalities are created beings, which means that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the powers and principalities can be redeemed. And it is our job as followers of Jesus to call all of creation back to God, which includes the powers and principalities, which actually means that it is our responsibility as Christians to advocate within our powers and principalities for their redemption, for their good. And that can only happen when they remember that they were created for humankind. They were created for the flourishing of humankind. And so I agree with you, like a hundred percent. I'm not like, I'm I'm not going to be on board the the Abraham Kuiper train, not going to be on board the neo-Calvinist sort of train of thought, but I think they do have a point, right? Like That our job is to agitate and to to push for change and to say, well, there are ways in which this system does not bring about life. How can we change that? How can we say to our, our government, hey, you should be about change. You should be about looking out for the poor. Like Tommy Douglas, who went on to form what is now the New Democrat Party, was a Baptist preacher, right? John Diefenbaker, one of our conservative prime ministers, really advocated for the end of the apartheid system and brought it to light. There's a bunch of things problematic about Diefenbaker, but that's not one of them. He also advocated for like, anti-racist policies in his tenure as prime minister. He also pushed against some of the other stuff that was happening, particularly around Asian discrimination. So what does it look like for us to go back into our, into our history and look for examples where Christians have actually pushed for political change, not for the sake of politics, but for the sake of the flourishing of people so that they might know Jesus. The other thing I would say is, you know, like there are people in our congregations who are already advocating for that change, right? So what does it look like to walk alongside them and support them and pray for them? What does it look like for us to provide a theological basis for the sort of change that God is advocating for? What change is the spirit already churning up that we're not aware of? Because we've been so caught up in this antagonism of the United States where certain parties are more Christian than others, which frankly doesn't exist in Canada, by the way. And then also silence. How do we practice silence? How do we be still? Lastly, I would say, like, have some curiosity. Develop some, you know, divinely inspired curiosity that provokes the imagination that God gave you. Just be open and, and see what God is up to. Like, if you're not curious, you won't learn anything. This is, say, honestly, this, I'm not, this is not why I'm a professor. Like, the, the book reading, it's because I'm curious. I don't know something. I go and read. And then I think. And then I pray. Not often in that order. Often in the reverse order. But it, it is the sort of thing where I'm saying, okay, well, let, let's not think we know it all. Like, what do we still yet have to learn that God has to walk us into, right? We don't do this alone. And there's certainly resources out there for people to, to kind of dip their feet into if they need to. So, for example, Nate's has just had their big conference on um, indigenous reconciliation with Christians and they're a Christian organization that has been raising up good Christian indigenous scholars, learned so much from them. So what does it look like for us to actually engage in in conciliation with First Nations peoples here, right? Other than that, I've got nothing.
0: You mean you just gave us everything and then now you're saying I got nothing. So I think that's a contradiction because you gave us so much to think about.
1: <laughs> or I'm Canadian, you know? <laughs>
0: You know what? Chinese-Canadian. Gonna... Oh, man. Oh, man. There's a lot going on Boom. here. We're going to end it off there because that was a excellent word to end it off and a lot to continue to sit with and chew on. And yeah, thank you so much. Xenia, we definitely missed you in the first two parts, but we're so glad that we got to hear from your perspective today and to hear your reactions. And you probably keep us more in line than you probably know. So anyways our next episode we're going to be wrapping up this series and we're going to be responding to how people reacted to these first three episodes so if you got something please let us know you can reach us on Facebook Instagram Twitter or by email contact.campodcast at gmail.com And if you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review and subscribe to our episodes. That helps us get this conversation out there. And it is a conversation because we want to be in conversation with you, the listeners. So let us know what you think. As always, you have been listening to the Canadian Asian Emissional Podcast. And on behalf of Xenia, Shu, and Bernard, we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time. Peace.